There was no particular moment, but my life has never been the same since. And I think it was a couple of things. One, I needed to cry. I really needed to cry. Mourn the loss of my father, except the fact that I was an alcoholic just like a lot of people. That was the hand I was dealt by God the day I was born in that adoption home back in 1953, but I had survived. And what I learned, and I, I preach this to people I work with today, it's all over my website, it's everywhere. Never, never, never give up. And for some reason, all those years, I never gave up because something inside of me, as a friend of mine calls it, your inner hero, that innocent child I was when I was born, wasn't gonna let me give up. And it was divine intervention. Green lights and blue skies are on their way. Yeah, they're on their way. Welcome to Crosstalk. I'm here in sunny South Florida to do our first Crosstalk interview with Corey sitting here. Usually Irene is sitting here, but today it's me, and I'm so excited. Um, today we're going to interview my friend Bob W., who is a guy who I would say has the biggest heart of anybody I've met in my sobriety. Bob just hugs everybody with his adoring love and everybody is welcome in, in Bob's home and in his heart. And I want you to meet my buddy, Bob Wick. Bob, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm so excited for you, for you being here to for let everybody else know what I know, which is what a great guy you are, and primarily find out how the hell it is that we stay sober. So talk to it. Start out wherever you want to start, and, and uh, let's run. Well, if I had known 50 years ago that when I got sober, I could be sitting here with Corey, I would have been sober a long time. Man, this is a trip. Um, my name is Bob Wick. I don't hide my anonymity or that. I'm 70 years old. Um, where I started, um, and it's important because it affected my entire life, and I never realized that until a few years ago. I was born into uh, an adoption home in Brooklyn, Angel Guardian Home for Children still exists today. Um, I have one brother who's five years older who is also from the same adoption home. Um, you have the same parents? Don't have the same birth parents? No. Okay. Not. Um, but you were both adopted by the same family? We were both adopted by the same family from the same adoption home. Got it. Um, I don't know anything about my birth mother or any of that. Um, even though, oddly enough, uh, Angel of Guardians in Brooklyn. And in the 1980s, I was driving through Brooklyn, <clears throat> and I was at a red light on the far right corner, Angel Guardian home. And I sat there while the light was waiting. Should I go in? Should I find out? Should I go in? And I never did. I always felt that would be, in a way, disloyal mm -hmm. to my adoptive parents. Um, but yeah, my generation, post-World War II, my dad was in the Navy, all that. We... Uh, I grew up on the North Shore of Long Island, a little town called Northport. Um, no drama, nothing to really highlight the childhood. I mean, I was provided very well for. Um, what dad, age were you when you went with the same family that your brother went with, and what age was he? Um, he was five years older than me. I don't know the age when he was adopted. I was adopted uh, shortly after birth. I mean, I was born okay. at the adoption home. Mm -hmm. which was run by uh, K. 
Catholic nuns. And um, so yeah, growing up uh, on Long Island, my dad commuted into New York City every day. Um, that was just the way they did things, uh, did things back then. Uh, but I think common for that age group, uh, when he got home from work every night, he'd go upstairs, change his clothes, come back to the kitchen, the dining room door would close, the door to the family room would close, and it was cocktail hour. Mm -hmm. Mom and dad, they drank Clam McGregor scotch, cheap scotch. Um, and that would go on for a good hour. And you did not enter the kitchen while cocktail hour uh, was going on. We'd have a formal sit-down dinner, all that, Catholic family. Um, so nothing uneventful in my early childhood. And then I was around 10 or 11 years old and Catholic. And in the Catholic Church, you received different sacraments. And one is called the Sacrament of Confirmation. And so after dinner, my mother excuses herself. It's just my father, my mother, and myself at dinner that night. She goes upstairs to the office, comes back down, and I can remember this, which is odd. She's standing over my right shoulder with a piece of paper. My mother called me Bobby. And she said, Bobby, I want to show you this. It's your birth certificate. And you'll see on the birth certificate, it says Angel Guardian Home for Children. You're adopted. And I'm 10 or 11. And I've told enough therapists about this that I think I remember it vividly. And my reaction was, oh, what's for dessert? And not knowing it at the time, it was noted, it was registered, and life went on from there. And the adoption was never, ever discussed again, brought up again. I never asked anything about it again. My entire life, except sometime in the 80s, I was in my mid-30s, and um, that was the generation where they sent Christmas cards. <clears throat> we were down visiting my parents. My mother had an old wooden salad bowl that she'd put all the Christmas cards in. And I was going through them. I came across one, and it was a handwritten note, and I don't remember it clearly, and I'm told I'll never remember it clearly. And I was asking about Bobby. That has been 30-something years now. How is he? And it was a woman's name signed to it that I can't remember. But anyway, I walked into the kitchen where my mother was. I showed her the birthday card, or Christmas card, rather, and I said, it's just from whom I think it is. She froze in tears. So yeah, that's from your birth mother. I stormed out of the house. My wife and my kids were all there in the house. I stormed out the front door, walked around the block for a while, came back, went into the house as if nothing had ever happened. Then it never came up again. Um, but why I bring that up, um, According to the 2010 census, uh, one in seven babies are adopted. And of adopted people, uh, approximately 50% of them have some kind of issue with addictive substances. Um, one, because of the fear of abandonment being adopted. And a lot of it comes as genetic from the uh, birth parents to the adopted child. And the reasoning being a lot of them were probably struggling with drug or alcohol at the time of, of, of birth of the child, and they put them up for uh, well, adoption. It, it absolutely. Uh, I'm, I, I know that to be the case from having been, uh, you know, in, in groups and and in sessions uh, in, in rehabs and, and in meetings. But crazy, the, I think the first four or five 
people that were ever on Crosstalk. One, two, three, four, everybody's adopted. It's not something that's unusual that, you know, they kind of uh, go together. And so I, I, my experience is absolutely what you're saying. And, and I bring that up because at the end, when I finally did get sober, I learned a lot about that and how I had filed and stored it and never dealt with it. And um, at times, I was truly a root cause of my drinking excessively. So, you know, I had a good life on Long Island. Um, met my, the woman that would become my wife for 40 years uh, when I was 15 in high school. Um, went off to college in Vermont and um, was supposed to go to law school, um, St. John's, but got married two weeks after I graduated. And um, came back to New York City a year later. Um, this fine lady got herself pregnant and we had twins. And that was the rest of my life. Things took off. Um, what happened to law school? Never went. Because? Twins. <clears throat> so his family. family yeah, we were going to get married, relocate back to New York City, get settled in, and then, you know, St. John's, all that. Um, so was it about getting a job and, and, and starting? Yeah, getting some money in the okay. bank because we were got broke it. when we got married, coming out of college. And, uh, yeah, and then the unexpected pregnancy and living on 80th in New York on the Upper East Side with no money, and now we have two kids. So. Fancy. Yeah, life changed. Oh, we were living, we were living a good life. Um, but yeah, that, that, that changed everything. But, you know, we, we were of the, uh, you know, the group. We'd have our cocktails at 5 o'clock every night, a couple of cocktails, and life went on, and alcohol wasn't an issue. And it wouldn't become a real issue till uh, much later on. So uh, my career was taking off. Everything was going well. Um, you had other kids, right? I have twin daughters uh, that we had uh, a year after we got married, and then five years later, my son. Um, work was going well. I was a young rock star with an insurance company in lower Manhattan called the AIG. Uh, 28, I was transferred up to Boston and became, at 28, which is pretty cool, president of the Life Insurance Company of New Hampshire in Manchester, New Hampshire. Wow. And had an office in uh, Boston. And I was the young, you know, I was a rock star, relocation, had a company car. You lived in Boston? And uh, we lived in Nashua because it was the first town over the state line and there were no income taxes. So, but, uh, so yeah, I had the office in Manchester and one in Boston. I would split my time. Got bored with the corporate life, hooked up with some other fellows. Um, one fellow had run an insurance company much older than me. We started our own company, which became my pattern career-wise. Um, we're starting different companies, one after the other. I'd get bored. I mean, <clears throat> what I found out is no matter how well I did in life, marriage, work, money, enough was never enough. I still struggle with that to this day. Um, I seem to be always chasing something. My life was going well. We were living in uh, Wickford, Rhode Island, last name Wick. We were the Wicks of Wickford. My parents were still on Long Island. Everything was going great. I built a custom home, nice cars, the boats, the whole thing. And one day I got a phone call. How old are you at this point? Uh, 34. <coughs> 34. Wow. <clears throat> I get a call from the woman who's the wife of my father's best friend. So right away I knew something was up. And... Um, I said, Bob, uh, the short version, uh, 
your dad's diagnosed with cancer, has nine months to live. And uh, we used to go down to Long Island a lot. It's about a four-hour drive from Rhode Island, so it was easy to get to Connecticut. And over the bridge, my immediate concern, obviously, for my father, who was 72 at the time, retired at 65. He and my mom had been traveling all over the world. You know, um, it was one of those stories. He started out in the mailroom. She was a secretary. He retired as chairman of the board, and she never worked, you know, her entire life. So they were living, you know, a fine retirement life. Uh, but my mother always tended to drink a lot in the evening. I don't know if I, to this day, whether I'd call her a true alcoholic or not. I don't know what the textbook definition, but at night she'd drink the cocktail hour and have a difficult time stopping. And so uh, we started, my wife and I and the kids, going down every weekend, four-hour drive, big deal, to be with my father, and he had to go through the chemo, and he was a tall, six-foot-five, very GQ, custom suit, man of few words, never really showed any emotion. But over time, physically, he started deteriorating. So eventually I said to my wife, leave the kids at home, we'll go down, just the two of us. And I knew at night when we'd have our cocktails, I immediately just started to drink a little bit more. You were? I was. And in hindsight, that's how I was dealing with this. I mean, I adored the man. I mean, I absolutely adored the man. And it got to a point where physically he was really going downhill. I said to my wife, stay home. You don't need to see my father like this. And so now I'm driving down every weekend. And even when she and I went down, I'd always have a couple of beers in the car for the ride. Now I'm going by myself, I'm having a lot more beers. And the problem with the drive from Rhode Island to Long Island is eventually you have too much beer, you gotta pee. And I could never find a place to pull over. So I had the brilliant idea one day, why don't you just get a fifth of vodka, get a little juice or something in a bottle, and use that for the drive. So that became the pattern. What I wasn't conscious of, and this is after my father died, and uh, eventually we had to put my mother in a nursing home, and by then we were living in uh, North Carolina. Um, my brother came in from Montana. He never came in while my father was dying. He just could call me up, how are things going? He's a, very, he's a very cold man. Even if he sees this video, he's a very cold man. And uh, my father had old bedroom dresser drawers down in the basement. So we're getting ready to clean out the house, and I'm opening the dresser drawers. And by God, they're full of plastic, empty, half-gallon bottles of vodka. And that's how I got through those final months of going down to, quote, take care of my mother and be with my father. So this is your age at this point. You're close 35. This is 1972. <clears throat> and that's, in hindsight, when my alcoholism kicked in. And did it, when, when your, your dad passed, did it subside after that, or did it stay at that level and, and just, you know, kind of take off on a regular basis? One of the hardest things for me to admit, I was absolutely shit-faced at the funeral. Absolutely blown away shit-faced. Um, and no, it was, uh, it was problematic from there on. I was the atypical high-functioning alcoholic, continued to do well in business, different companies with different people. Um, never had a DUI, never had an accident, I mean, nothing. Um, but I had a hard time at night not having a drink. 
And um, eventually, uh, we ended up living in Davidson, North Carolina, and uh, I started going to AA meetings. What year are we in now? That's a good, that's a good question. That's a good question. That's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. I'm sitting here, came to Florida in 2008. So around 2000, give or take, around 2000, give okay. or take. And uh, at Davidson College, which a lot of people know of, <clears throat> it was a Presbyterian church there and they had a 715 AA meeting. And I remember going to that meeting, sitting in the back row. This is AM, 715 AM meeting? 715 AM. And all these people were sitting in front of me. It wasn't that big a meeting. And I'm looking at the back of their heads going, these poor, sorry sons of bitches, they're alcoholics. Not me. Thank God, I just have a problem. But not me. I am not an alcoholic. And it wasn't until years later that I finally had the nuts to admit to myself that, that, that I was an alcoholic. So yeah, we're living in North Carolina. put my mother in an assisted living facility that was part of Davidson College. And then, uh, yeah, so I was functioning, but I was still drinking, but not during the day or anything like that, but drinking way too much at night. And um, again, highly successful in all that I was doing. And then, uh, and I'm fast forwarding, I know. But in 2008, uh, with an old friend of mine, decided to uh, move to Delray and start a financial services business in Boca, right across the street from uh, Ocean Drive. And that was, that was 08. And the business took off beyond my wildest expectations. Um, but my wife and I really didn't like Florida that much. So we got an apartment on uh, Beacon Street in Boston. It was a perfect location. It was two blocks from Cheers. So when I had to run out to get a pack of cigarettes, thinking I was following my wife right to Cheers. And I got to a point where, who's the guy? They knew his name at the bar. I mean, they'd know me when I walk in. And, the vodka tonics would be, uh, be on the bar. And I was making more money than I ever had, and uh, my wife started uh, coming down less and less. And uh, maybe just because I'm a complete idiot, but I had no sense that maybe something was amiss. <clears throat> then in 2016, I mean, I had a house in Delray on the water. I had a big dock in the back and a boat. We're sitting on the back of the boat, and she looks at me and said, enough's enough, I want a divorce. And she was smart. It was the year I made the absolute most money I had ever made. It was a healthy seven-figure number. She took me to the cleaners. God bless her. She timed it right. Um, but what's interesting about that is uh, people very close to me had told me prior to that that, Bob, as long as you're married to her, you're never going to get sober. She would never stop drinking. She'd have her five o'clock cocktail. And she thought she was helping me by hiding the vodka bottle in the kitchen under different cabinets or behind pots and pans or whatever. This is before she announced that she wants to yeah. end the marriage. Yeah. <clears throat> so along the way, she was wanting to try to limit your alcohol use by not doing anything visible in front of you. We, we tried the whole thing for Bob, you know, let's go to wine only or beer only or whatever. But yeah, she still wanted a five o'clock cocktail. And I was like, fine with me, I'm good. Which is such bullshit. Remember my first therapist called me the fair weather man. Said, anytime I see you, how are you? Oh, things are great. Blue skies, white clouds, no fucking problems. 
That's what I used to tell people. I, I thought it was funny, right? Blue skies, white clouds, no fucking problems. The meantime, hungover. Um, so yeah, the divorce kicked in. So we're in 2016. 2016. I knew I had a problem. I got involved in AA. I had a sponsor. Quote, did the steps. Wasn't taking things seriously. Continuous relapses. And uh, discovered a place in Delray called The Sanctuary. And it was a halfway house owned and run, owned by uh, Eric Clapton. And um, one of our alumni who I met in the rooms of AA, not knowing would end up being alumni, a fellow named Chris O., um, said, you need to come with me and check out this place, the sanctuary. We ended up being roommates. I can remember kneeling by the side of the bed with him, saying prayers. And uh, so I tried that for a while, but kept relapsing. And he took off and did his own thing. And I ran into him later, and I still was struggling. And he said, you ought to go up to Palm Beach and try out this place called Hanley, 30-day program. So that was my first real attempt. And we're in 2017 now? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 16, 16, 17. Um, so I went to Hanley. Now you're living, your wife and you are not living together. Now I'm in the Delray house. She's gone. Okay. She's gone. And I'm, I'm on my own. And you're trying to get sober. I'm trying to get sober. And what I learned from a therapist, if you really want to jack up somebody who's adopted and abandonment issues, divorce them, right? And it set me off, but I wasn't aware it had set me off. But I knew the drinking now is out of control. I'm drinking in the morning, just stay steady. I mean, it was awful. It was awful. And I knew what I was doing. I knew I wanted to stop, and I couldn't. I couldn't. So I went to Hanley, came home. That didn't work. Ended up going out to Malibu Passages. Thought that would be a lot of fun. It was good. It was the Hollywood crowd, celebrities. Got to know Liza Minnelli. Couldn't stay sober. Did a month, came home. A month later, went back to Passages of Ventura. These are six-figure deals, you know, so I'm writing checks like crazy. I'm trying, and I can't get it. But I don't know how hard I wanted to get it at the time. Life was okay, because when I came home and screwed up, I was by myself. I wasn't accountable to anybody. So I fucked up. I'll go back for another 30 days. Here's 100 grand. And, you know, um, and then eventually, I don't know what, caused it. But I was introduced to uh, Karen and somebody, and I think, in hindsight, I think it was Chris. Karen Treatment Center. Karen Treatment Center. <coughs> and, They're a not-for-profit. Uh, go to Ocean Drive. Mm -hmm. And it was literally right next door to where my business was. I mean, it was that eerie when I found out where it was. I mean, I could walk from my office to Ocean Drive. And I went to Ocean Drive. I was there about three weeks, and a hurricane was coming in. It was late October, 7, 2017. And they said it was going to be the first direct hit on Delray. And so I went to the powers to be and said, let me ride out the hurricane at home on the weekend. My house is on the water. I got a 40-foot boat, a dock. I'd rather be there. So this is October. It turned out to be a long weekend because I came back in uh, February the following year. So I went home, never got it, kept relapsing. So being home during that, that hurricane period, you started drinking again, and it just, just kind of... Started drinking off again the, about five minutes after I walked in the front door. Off the rails. Off the rails again. Yep. So a year later, what happens? 
Um, no, that was in October. I went back to Ocean Drive in uh, February. Okay. I was there about three days. I was staying in a, they call it the men's house. I was there about three days and had to get rushed to the hospital. Ended up having a, a partial colon resection. Went back to the men's house and had to have a wound nurse for a month. Like I wasn't very mobile at the time. The therapists were coming to the house. My therapist came by one day and gave me a book called Primal Wound. And it's all about adoption and the things you deal with and abandonment. This wasn't that long ago. I remember sitting in that room and I had never cried in my life. Sitting in that room by myself, Corey, crying uncontrollably, pounding the bed. And what I eventually came to realize, because I never lost my faith, and there was no spark, flash of lightning, anything. But I remember waking up one morning saying, my life had been divine intervention. This is the path God had put me on. I had to go through what I had to go through. A lot of wonderful times. A lot of difficult times. And this is where I ended up, sitting in this house with a wound nurse. They took such good care of me there, bringing my meals to the room and whatever. Eventually, when I got up in mobile, driving me back and forth for the group therapies, there was no particular moment but my life has never been the same since. And I think it was a couple of things. One, I needed to cry. I really needed to cry. Mourn the loss of my father, except the fact that I was an alcoholic just like a lot of people. That was the, that was the hand I was dealt by God the day I was born in that adoption home back in 1953. But I had survived. And what I learned, and I, I preach this to people I work with today, it's all over my website, it's everywhere. Never, never, never give up. And for some reason, all those years, I never gave up. And not consciously, it's just, that's how I rolled. And I, I never gave up, I kept coming back, different treatments, whatever. Because something inside of me, as a friend of mine calls it, your inner hero. That innocent child I was when I was born wasn't going to let me give up. And it was divine intervention the whole time. You know, it's interesting. I, I think the, the strength that you got from the events you just described is about just for a little while... The sky wasn't blue, the clouds weren't white, and in order to be able to come out the other side, it's got to rain a little bit. The, the absence of the light is the necessary part. That's a line from 93 Million Miles to the Sun by Jason Mraz, and he's taught by his mother and father that, you know, the, there's sun and then there's darkness, and you need both of them. And so the it sounds like the what you went through in the the room at at the um, the rehab uh, crying was something 
probably, you know, it's a necessary part. You need to be able to do that, be able to come to terms, come to grips, the fact that things aren't perfect. They're not perfect all the time, but it's a good life. The crying part was obviously a cathartic experience, but I remember physically later that night, walking out of the room, I felt lighter. I felt lighter. It's hard to put that into words, but I think it was mentally, physically, spiritually, whatever. Uh, Something happened during that weeping. And it went on for quite a bit. I couldn't tell you how many hours, but it was a long experience. I couldn't stop and I was shaking and whatever. But the other piece besides that and accepting that it was divine intervention, Part of the treatment I went through, which helped me in accepting the fact that I was an alcoholic, was they take, they, they do this treatment, they, they take pictures of your brain, right? Mm-hmm. I'm colorblind, but I remember sitting at this table, this woman doctor, this woman psychiatrist, and they're putting out all these pictures of my brain in color, but they're saying, here's where it resides in your brain, not your fault. But there it is, and here's what we think are some necessary treatments to go through and whatever, which I did. But that moment, the sense of relief that I wasn't the guilty party, that it wasn't my fault, that I was born with this disease, like a whole lot of other people. And now is my turn to figure out how to deal with it with the help of these different professionals. I identify with the feeling lighter it's like from when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's like you just kind of shed the, the crap that you're carrying around and you really can go now embark on a new journey. And what I learned from it, almost becoming like this alcoholic evangelist or something, <laughs> is telling other people that are struggling, that are caught in that repetitive cycle of recovery, which I was. I never gave up, you know, but I was in a cycle whether it was Hanley or Passages or wherever. Relapse, I, I relapse cycle. That relapse cycle, that, that there is a way out. And once you discover it and you can get on with life, accepting that you've got this for the rest of your life, you've got to stay conscious daily. You better have the desire, dedication, and discipline. I call it the three Ds. Be on your toes every day and be conscious of it for me because for me, it's, it's still there. I rarely even think about picking up a drink anymore. Over time, that romantic thought of wouldn't it be nice to have a cocktail has gone away. But I think that's just a factor of, of time. And it, it took me a while. Because I remember when I, when I left Ocean Drive, I walked in the front door of that house. And there was nobody in the house but my dog, Ella. And it was a revolving door, big door. And I opened the door, Ella's looking up at me, and before the door hit me in the ass, I remember looking at her going, now what the fuck do we do? I felt good physically, I felt good up here, I got it, I walked out of treatment, and I'm standing at the front door. What do I do? Now what? And not consciously aware of it, over time, over time, I dedicated myself, and, and this really hit a light a couple of years before my 70th birthday. 
True story. It's my 68th birthday, standing in front of the bathroom mirror, admiring my man boobs, which were robust, looking down at the floor, realizing I couldn't see my feet and other vital parts of my body. And I made a commitment right there that when I turned 70, I would be in the best shape mentally, physically, spiritually that I could. Went back to the gym the next day and I haven't stopped. And I could sit here today honestly saying, mentally, physically, spiritually, I'm in the best place of my entire adult life. Well, you and I know each other for about eight years. Yeah. And um, I can tell you that the, the Bob Wick sitting over here is a different guy than the guy I met. I, absolutely, in, in all respects. Not to mention the fact that you're also available to help other people. And I wanted to, you to talk a little bit about you know, what you do to stay sober. For, for me, by the way, you, you said that you, you kind of don't think about picking up now. Um, I relapsed in 2014. And I spent two years on a mouse, on, like a mouse on a wheel. Yeah. And I wasn't a chronic relapser. That was the one relapse after some sobriety, long-term sobriety. But for me, I know exactly how the movie ends when I pick up. I know what the result is. The result is that my life begins and then continues on a pretty rapid course to be screwy and fucked up. And I, I don't need to watch the movie again. I know how it ends. I don't want to be there. I want to be right where I am right now. Not always perfect. Things are not always great. But they're a hell of a lot better uh, the way things are now, not using any mood-altering chemicals, drugs, or alcohol, or any other crazy behavior. It's a lot better just dealing with life on life terms. Once you get it, you're the only one that can take it away. And it, you know, it takes a while, but, but you... What's helpful for me was the realization that it is a disease that resides in my brain. There's a part of my brain that's any way they can will want to activate it and bring it back to life. And I've got to, on a daily basis, remember that and be aware of it. You know, you, you hear in the rooms of AA, people, places, and things. I probably at times overdo that. I'm very cautious of where I will go socially. I'm very cautious of who I will hang around with or who I'll share confidence with about how I'm doing. Um, probably more protective of myself than perhaps I need to be at, at this part of my life. But it works for me. I found a way to live that, that works. And God, I have my moments. I mean, I can still sit in my house by myself, suck my thumb, the world's coming to an end. I still struggle with that. Enough is never enough to this day. I don't know if I'll ever get over it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you mentioned I found an outlet. I've dedicated myself now. I went through some, some work to get to in a position where I feel I have the ability um, to help people that are caught in that repetitive cycle of recovery, as I call it, who are living the life that I had to live for a long time. And if all I can do with somebody is share with them my experience and then how it ended, if you will, and that can be of help to them, I get more fulfillment out of that inside than anything I've ever done in my life. And in hindsight, you know, when I had the Del Rey house, there were certain people that would come by on a regular basis, unannounced, just knock on the door, come in, sit, talk for an hour or two, and you know some of the people, get up and leave. And I'd be like, okay, that was the end of that. What I learned, 
and some of the you know friendships, whatever I've developed over time. So I've always, in a way, had the ability to help people to a certain degree, but I'm now more conscious of how much I get out of it, which in a way is somewhat selfish. But if I can really, I mean, during COVID, there was somebody who's living a wonderful sober life now who, when I first met him, was a, a wreck, a train wreck. During COVID, he'd come over to my house seven days a week, sit down outside, 20 minutes, talk a little bit, get up and leave. And just, and I never said anything. I thought it was odd, whatever. And I was in a meeting, I think about three weeks ago, and he was talking to a group of people and, and uh, recounted what that experience was like for him and what I had done for him that I would never was really aware of. That, and man, that just, I don't even sound corny, that filled me up. And you know I have a sense of humor, and it can be a rough sense of humor. That gave me more personal gratification. Well, since I met you, since I met you, I, the first thing I said when we started this cross-talk interview is that your door is always open to everybody. Uh, you, you were the guy when there were meetings that were held at your house when people needed to do meetings. Uh, when there were parties, it was always come over to Bob's house. So you've always had the, the ability, you've had that magnetism to attract people. So people know that you're, you're a lover. You know what's cool about it? Yeah, I, I forgot, yeah, it used to be that Wednesday meeting, yeah. and uh, the treatment center we went to would drive their Denali's over with current patients even. Um, yeah, I forgot about that, it was a good thing. And one of the people I'm helping out a little bit now that actually came to my house was like this world famous like rock and roll star. The man was a rock and roll star, he was part of it, so uh, his name wasn't as known as the name of the band. And uh, we got to be friends and then lost contact and whatever. And uh, I tracked him down three, four months ago. His wife had died. He'd been through a lot of shit. He's older than I am. And now we're... That's great. ...talking. And he's sharing. And, and yeah, the gratification I get out of that. Um, and I check with myself to make sure, Corey, that it's not pride, that it's not ego, that it's not overly being selfish, but I really enjoy helping other people that are living the life that I had to live for so long. They have the passion. They're not giving up. They have the desire to get sober. They just haven't figured out how to maintain the sobriety. So there are things, um, it's wonderful to help other people and it's great to get self-satisfaction out of seeing people like that gentleman you were talking about. I know exactly who you're talking about and I love him and he, I can't believe the, the life he's leading. He's a yeah. great guy. Um, so yeah, you, you do that stuff and you're really good at doing that. Anything in your personal life you want to share with anybody about any events that have occurred maybe recently, any special things that are going on? I mean, I think 18 years ago, your wife announced that you're getting divorced so, I don't know, uh, I can't think of anything you might want to be bragging about. If I ever heard a loaded question before in my life, that was it. <laughs> but yeah, who's ever watching when I said that doctor showed me pictures of the brain? She's a doctor that works at this treatment center that has been doing work on the brain for 15 years. And uh, recently it's become quite the topic of discussion about the brain. And so I met her in 2017 when she showed me brain pictures. 
kind of lost touch with her. And then uh, beginning of this year, the treatment center opened up a new building. And I was going there twice a week to sit in on patient meetings. They wanted alumni to come by. And I was starting my coaching work and all that. And in hindsight, it, it worked out to be good. The new chairman, we sat, he knows what I'm doing. And so I go by there regularly. Uh, but they had the grand opening of the building and uh, we were in the lobby. And I looked at this woman and said, doctor, whomever, so why don't we get together sometime outside of this building? We've known one another now for how many years? It's, you know, silly, similar age. Find out we both got divorced within days of one another back in 2016. Let's get together. So being the romantic that I am, our first date was a Mission Impossible movie on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, I'm first class. I think I bought the popcorn and the tickets. Holy cow. And... We were together four months later, and out of the blue, I turned to her. I don't think she'd mind my telling this, so I just looked her straight in the eye, and I said, at our age, the clock's running, you want to get married. I didn't have an engagement ring, I didn't have anything, it just popped out. She's now wearing an engagement ring, we're going to get married, and we're finding out we have more in common than we could have realized. She's a very Christian woman, very deep faith, we both believe in divine intervention. And we think our getting together at this point in our life, I'm 70, she's a couple of years over, older. Um, I keep telling her God's driving the bus. We're just passengers and we'll see where the ride's going to take us. So let me just get this straight. So in 2017, you're with a doctor. She shows you pictures. She says, there's your alcoholism. Yep. That's it in black and white. Yep. And now fast forward in 2024, the two of you are engaged. Yep. Do you think the doctor needs to get her head examined? <laughs> Probably. I've told her, be careful what you ask for. Yeah. You know what you're dealing with. That's as funny a line as I could possibly come up with. <laughs> well, the worst part was, I remember she showed me where it was in my brain, and there was another doctor, another woman, psychiatrist, sitting next to her. And I said, am I okay? And they said, after all you've been through, Yours is one of the cleanest brain pictures we've seen. You're good to go. <laughs> nice. And so here we are. Well, the pictures here must not are. have been that bad because she said yes. What's good about it, truthfully, is she knows the good, bad, and ugly about Bob. She has seen all sides of me. Um, so when she accepted that first date, it took me two weeks after I asked her, do you want to get together outside the building? to have the courage to pick up the phone and call her and say, hey, you want to get together? I mean, I was that, what, she, I mean, I kind of, she's held in high regard. She really is. Yeah. And she'll kick me in the nuts when I, she watches this and hears me. She has a very matronly way about her and all that. And, and so I was like, what the hell would she want to see me for? And come to find out, her entire life is dedicated to helping the patients. She lives for it. Four days a week, she drives an hour and a half minimum each way to work, because that's how bad she wants to help patients. But saw what I went through, that I never did give up, that I had those get-togethers at the house, and kind of from afar observing. And uh, I'm glad I picked up the phone and called her. Well, you know, what, what we've heard today in this interview is there's a lot to unpack in the Bob Wick story. Um, but 
the one thing that, that's very clear to me is that by doing the, the next right thing, by doing, doing kind of following along in what you're shown, um, you can really just, it just becomes part of you and who you are right now, you're now in a position uh, to give back to other people and you're getting all the blessings. Blessings is the word that I, I want to use because you, you, you've gotten a lot of blessings throughout your life from the very beginning to where we are right now. And I can't think of anybody that deserves those blessings more than you do. Thank you. I mean it. Yeah, I love you very much. You're, you're a solid guy. And everybody in the community down in South Florida here uh, feels the same way as I do. You know, you're, you're a really important part of our recovery community down here in South Florida. And just keep doing everything that you're doing. I, I don't know if you can have a big wedding or not, but... You know, even even if you're selling tickets or something like that, uh, I just want to know more about how, how things are going. And I know they're going to go great, but... Uh, you, know, you got a sense of humor. It's a little warped, but you have a good sense of humor. And we kid around a lot. But the work I'm starting to do now, helping others, is exactly what you're doing, doing these videos. Yeah. We put a lot of time, a lot of effort into it, now partnering up with Irene, and you're doing it so the people that are watching, it will help them in their recovery process. And so when you asked me to do this, that meant a lot to me personally. It really did. They had the confidence that perhaps I could share something that might help the people that are watching. So thank you. Yeah, well, you, you did exactly what I knew you would do. Thank you. We're, we're going to hug it out. Yeah. Let's see what happens. I want to give my friend. But yeah. I love you. Thank you. You're the best. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I love you too. Okay. Let's start. Okay. Thank you.